Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 157, the LinuxCon Report, part one, recorded August 27th, 2014, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Linux show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. And this week, we have a little more Linux and a little more life all thrown into to one place, as Seth tells us about his experience in the in the holy land of the neckbeards at LinuxCon. And, uh, and of course... To do that, we have to have Seth here, and that Seth is the great gooey kid, Seth Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hello, Mark, and welcome to the awesome family that is Everyday Linux. And with Seth, as always, is the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. Hey, Chris. Hello, hello, everyone, and I hope everyone is having a great and happy week, because mine's been wet and dreary for the last three days. Uh, Are you sure you're not in Atlanta? Where yeah. it is the land, I'm calling it Wetlanta from now on. <laughs> it's not Hotlanta anymore, it's Wetlanta. Ah, uh, your season's changed then. No, that's just <laughs> always. Uh, oh. I, being from what people call the armpit of hell um, in, in central Texas, um, Atlanta has never impressed me with its heat. Uh, but, man, does it rain a lot here. Um Oh, oh, by the way, my name is Mark, sometimes referred to as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome back. We're, ha- we're, we're glad you're with us, um, and Seth is going to begin the show by complaining about Google Docs. <gasps> Dude, I mean, I went to access, you know, I wasn't around all week to work on the actual show. I was too busy uh, treading to stay above water in the uh, Linux con, and uh, so when I fired up Google Docs today, all of a sudden, I mean, it's just like, why can't I find a document? Gone are the days when you can list by fault. And now it, it just, it sucks. It is awful. I hate it, but you know, I'll, I'll, I'll hate it until they make some other change and I'll long for the simplicity that it has now. I guess I don't have the new update because my Google Docs looks exactly the same. Oh, mine does not. It, it's changed tremendously now. It's and you know there might be some secret you know make this layout make sense option. I don't know how to drill down into Googleness to find out, but now everything is like date related. And if you sort by like folders you have organized and you select some document, you may or may not get a document that was even in the folder you click select on. <laughs> it, it's just, I mean, that sounds very googly. We- it does. It hmm. sounds very googly. So, and what happens when engineers start doing UI? Um, yes. Yeah. So, Chris, have you got the new layout? I don't. I'm not sure because my layout has changed dramatically, but I'm still able to move around and list by date and time and last modified and everything else. Unless you're in the what they call the grid view, then it looks all sorts of wonky and weird, like thumbnails of everything. Uh, part of that might be my limited bandwidth. When I click apply to change, it doesn't ever change. So, uh, could be. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I'm got, if I have the same layout mistake as you do, but that, that's the thing about Google is they're so big. They roll things out in stages and, um, uh, and not everybody gets it. I right. Mean, away. My wife got the, uh, the new Gmail the, when they changed massively and, and put the heads next to names like almost a week before I did, and I couldn't help her. 
because I, I hadn't seen it. She was like, what? How do I? Cause she usually goes to me to help her with these things. And I'm like, I, mm-hmm. I have no idea. I've never seen this before. Sorry. You're going to have to slog through this and let me know when my time comes. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I wonder how they pick what's how they roll out. Because, like, I know when they did the first rollout for Priority Inbox, I got that right away. I mean, like, the day after I heard it, it was on my, I had it. I mean, it was like, bing, instantly. But the last couple of updates have, I've trudged a little behind. And I'm just curious to, I always would like to know what, what, you know, what's their methodology for, for pushing out updates? My guess, and, it's whichever home server is considered yours. You know, everything roams, right? But there is a, there's a server on which your account was created. And when mm-hmm. that one goes up, you're up. That's my guess. Yeah. Or like I was checking in from Chicago all week, you know, um, checking emails and stuff. And so it probably, oh, this guy's in Chicago. We'll screw with him. And, uh, <laughs> He's already so away from be. home. Did yeah. you get any uh, warnings about uh, the fact that you were logging in from a different place? Uh, nope, not yeah. really. When I was traveling a lot a couple of years ago, I, I got that a couple of times. Uh, just yesterday, you were in Texas. Today, you're in Wisconsin. What's going on here? Um which yeah, I'm, I've seen I think that. that's great. I like that. Uh, it was just a little bo- a box that said, you know, you're un- logging in from an unusual location. We're going to make you enter your password a second time. And I'm fine with that, frankly. No, yeah. they're like, we're screwing with this guy. I don't care if it's him or not. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm not fi- fine with? I'm not fine with the ice bucket challenge anymore. I'm done with it. Any any Anybody? Am I the only one? Maybe it's just I- in my Facebook feed that it's insane, but... My oh, feed no. now is almost entirely ice bucket challenge. And don't get me wrong, it's a good thing. It's drawing awareness to a thing. The ALS uh, Association says that they're getting, you know, exponential increases in donations. And if challenged, I will participate because, you know, it's, it's cool. Uh, literally, it's cold. Um, <laughs> but it's just, it's one of those things. I'm afraid that there's going to be a backlash of it. And, and I think that, yeah. in, in that, in the end, the internet trolls are going to ruin this thing. I'm afraid of that too. Uh, I know a lot of people that have been getting nominated here locally. For me, it it took a long time for someone to get here, uh, but now that it's here, it's all over the place, and it's yeah. just like, okay, guys, this is a bad thing. I know it. Everyone knows it. Why do we have to keep seeing it? My kids just got challenged today by yeah. some some other kids at our church, and yeah. uh, if they want to do it, I'll let them do it. And and if I'm not nominated, I'll do it because, uh, you know, it's it's it, the original thing was you either donate a hundred dollars or you dump a bucket of ice on your head. Then it got turned to you donate ten dollars and get a bucket of ice dumped on your head. And now it's sort of you dump a bucket of ice on your head and you get ten dollars. Um, and a whole lot of the ones I've seen, there hadn't been much ice in that water. Um, and so it's, <laughs> it's, it's getting watered down. And uh, frankly, I like it better now, uh, than the original. The original one was, you know, like trick or treat, right? Give me candy or I'll break windows. That's what trick or treating really, that's what that phrase means. Sure. Uh, right. Give me a treat or I will trick you. Um, and so the, the ice bucket challenge is, is that, you know, donate money or suffer anguish. Uh, and I kind of like the way it's morphed into I'm manning up. You should too. And so I, I like that better, but still it's, it's one of those things that has gone so viral so quickly. It can only end up being a bad thing in the end. Yeah. Eventually it's going to fall on its head. Well, I just wonder, 
I wonder, and it's probably just the cynic in me, how many people are doing just the ice bucket and not giving? Is it just another case of, you know, we, some people call it slacktivism. Other people right. call it hacktivism where, Ooh, look, look at how special I am. I'm making a huge difference. I'm not really doing anything. Uh, but I'm making a difference, not doing anything. And that's, that's my fear of this whole ice bucket thing. And, I got quasi challenged from somebody who just said, yeah, I want to see one you do I got it, too. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not going to do it. And, uh, I honestly, I don't know what I would do if I got challenged by somebody who actually did it. Yeah. Uh, you know, because at this point, if you don't do it, you basically, you know, you, you hate children. Yeah. Um, you're and you're out to kill the well, world. And, and that was exactly the response. Uh, this person is a mutual friend of, of Seth's and mine. And basically, this person uh, challenged everybody without doing it. Um, and my response was no video, no challenge. I, 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 re- I reject your reality and substitute my own. There you and go. And the reply to that was, oh, well, you must want children to die. Um, you know, that's, of course, a, a paraphrase of it, but that's what it ended up. If you care more about the rules than about people suffering, then, you know, you must be a terrible person, and that, I'm okay with that. But, Seth, to answer your initial thing, according to the ALS Association, their own website, ALSA.org, $62.5 million have come in as a result, direct result of the Ice Bucket Challenge. So while there may be a lot of slacktivism going on, it's also working. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. Awesome. I'm, that's cool, man. I wish, you know, it would be more than just the ice bucket challenge forcing people to donate to good causes. Yeah. And, of course, now the uh, the the right-wingers are saying, well, ALS does, uh, ALSA does one thing I don't like, so you shouldn't give your money there. Um, okay, fine. If you want to give your money to the Pope John Paul II Foundation, which also does ALS research, fine. But you don't have to go responding to every ice bucket challenge you see telling them well, how horrible the LSA did. they they do stem cell research and they don't rule out embryonic stem cells and since you don't rule out embryonic stem cells you murder babies so uh, that's why nobody wow. should give to the LSA because they murder babies yeah I, I prefer to just give and not really tell a lot of people that I did give um, that's yeah. just me but then again, I'm the one step away from get off my lawn guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I have decided that if I'm challenged, and now as a result of this show, I can pretty much guarantee I will be in the next week. Um, I w- because I have four women in my life that I love, my wife and my three daughters. I will have four buckets of ice uh, uh, dropped on me, and I will make four donations in each of their names. <laughs> because I don't Very do anything nice. halfway, baby. <laughs> it's all or nothing i saw one today it was great this guy filled a dump truck i'm sorry a cement truck with four thousand gallons of water sat behind it in a lawn chair and said all right go and all four thousand gallons of water poured out of that cement truck onto him wow <laughs> and his response was your turn bitches <laughs> and i just loved that that's, that's awesome uh, that's awesome brings it up to another level yeah I, I didn't see any ice, just to be pedantic. I don't think there was any ice in that water, so he technically it didn't count. Well. Because <laughs> that, that's what people will say. Yeah. Right. All right. Uh, Chris, you're going to be doing some traveling uh, soon to my neck of the woods. Yes, I will my be. My old neck um, of the woods. Yeah, I've my uh, my current employer says that I need to go meet the rest of my team, and so they're sending me to Fort Worth, 
uh, for uh, about a week and yeah, about a little over a, a one day more than a work week. So six days I'll be in Fort Worth. So don't call it Dallas while you're there. They hate that. Don't call it Dallas. <laughs> yeah. Even though they are separated by about six inches of road these days, they have pretty much become one city. If you call Fort Worth Dallas, you will be lynched. That's what I've heard, and I'm not going to because it's Fort Worth. <laughs> if you call Dallas Fort Worth, they go, yeah, whatever. <laughs> right. But the other way, it, isn't, it, it doesn't right. work, huh? Yeah. yeah. Yes. You can call it North Texas or you can call it the Metroplex. Both right. are acceptable terms. And even DFW is acceptable. In Dallas, not in Fort Worth. Right. <laughs> and don't awesome. don't even get me started on the Euless people. Um, the useless people. They uh <laughs> they don't want to be known as Fort Worth or Dallas, even though they're right in the middle of them. But anyway. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, let me know. We'll have to hook up. I'll uh I'll drive from Dallas to uh the foreign country that is Fort Worth uh one day and we'll do dinner or something. There was there was once a major news story where uh, a guy running for mayor of Dallas had a television ad, and one of the stock photos that the firm in you know Puyallup, Wisconsin, whatever, used uh, in his ad was of a uh, Fort Worth mounted police officer in front of the Fort Worth uh, City Hall. Yeah, um, and it was it was only on the screen for like five seconds, literally. Uh, less less than ten seconds, and this made front page news in both the Dallas and the Fort Worth newspapers, and was the subject of of late night news, local news, and everything because you know somebody made that mistake, and the the mayoral candidate doesn't know the difference between Dallas and Fort Worth. Hmm. Now come on, people, just That's, be less stupid. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and the the mayoral candidate was like. I don't know. I we hired somebody to do that. I, they just went through some stock footage. It was a good-looking guy. Get, get over it. But anyway, anyway, that's yeah. But yeah, it should be a fun trip. The the nice thing I I was told that the hotel they're putting me up in is within walking distance of all the offices that I will be going to. So that was it's kind of nice. Good. I don't technically even have to drive. Yeah, but see, nobody in Texas walks. If you walk, you will be the one. I will um, be. Yeah. Yeah, this, you'll mind. have the sidewalks all to yourself. Yeah. Sweet. People, people drive next door in Texas. It's the car is such a part of that culture. Um, well, I'm not kidding. I have seen out. people walk out to their yard, drive 30 feet away, and pull into the driveway next door. I've seen it happen. Wow. That yep. yeah, I'll be a fish out of water then, or <laughs> a, a Canadian out of Mont whatever. <laughs> a Canadian out of Montana. I like there it. Go. That's good. Uh, so Seth, did you have any interesting travel experiences along your way? Well, okay. I flew, um, you know, buddy fair by Southwest. And I just have to say Southwest is awesome. I've, uh, in the past year and a half, I've flown, you know, not a lot, but over a dozen times. And the Southwest flights were the, the nicest ones I've been on every, I, I was going to like take names of everybody who did a great job, but I would just be reading the name of every Southwest person I met because they were all nice and helpful. But the TSA, man, I hate the fact that I'm automatically a terrorist before I even make it into the airport, you yeah. know, because 
I was worried about being bumped for my flight. I didn't check my luggage. Um, I packed, yeah, I carried my suitcase with me and I forgot, you know, oh dear Lord, I'm going to destroy the world with the full size tube of toothpaste. Yeah, three ounces or less, my friend. Well, no, they yep. let, the thing is, the, the TSA person in Dallas said, uh, you know, just next time don't do this. And I was like, okay, I'm sorry, I forgot. But in Chicago coming back, uh, you have to throw that away. I'm like, okay, whatever. <laughs> whatever. I'm on my way home anyway. It's fine. Yeah. It's like, it's just like, what did the person in Dallas do? I was like, they let me through and told me not to do it again. And, uh, <laughs> so I had to throw away toothpaste because, you know, I guess you could, it's just stupid. Yeah. The TSA, <laughs> the, uh, anyway, I just hate the fact that it's automatically assumed you're a terrorist because you want to get on the plane. Um, you know, I hate the dehumanization process you have to endure to fly. I found out I really, I don't mind flying. You know, it, it's not bad, but I hate the fact that, that you're not allowed to be a human as you make your way through the airport. Um, that there's something wrong with our system. It's very broke. But the TSA yeah. hand job I got in uh, Wisconsin was really very gentle and quite thorough. <laughs> so uh, there's, you know, there's a, there's pluses to it as well. See, and I was yeah. gonna say I have a I have a TSA horror story too, but I thought it was I just chalked it up to me being me, you know, a Montana with a beard, and obviously that makes me a bad guy. That's right, you're Ted Kaczynski. That's right. Um, anyway, but we were coming back from San Diego, me, my two kids, and my wife, and so my wife and two kids got they just got you know let through the line, no, didn't have to. Well, they took off their shoes, but they just got to walk through the little metal detector. I walk up and it was immediately, can you go to the back scatter x-ray, please, sir? And I'm like, ah, no, <laughs> I refuse. You'll have to get somebody over here and they will have to pat me down because I will not go through that. And so instantly it was a big old thing. And then for 15 minutes, I stood under guarded watch for someone to come and watch to do the, the hand job. Yeah. And it was just like, really? This is ridiculous. My wife and two kids got through without a problem. Yeah. Why would I be any worse? Well, that, see, that's the perfect cover because terrorists are known to travel with with American women and American children. Uh, that's a that's a known ploy for mm-hmm. Middle Eastern terrorists to dress but, up like uh, Montanans and travel <laughs> with their children. Um, it's, uh, it's been done thousands of times, and you should know this by now. Oh, evidently, I just love the security theater because yeah. that's what it is. Uh, when I when I was flying uh, a lot there for a while, they do the random check for for gunpowder residue as you're getting on to the plane. So this is you've already gone through security. This is when you're boarding the plane. They will put you under a black light spray a chemical on you. I was randomly chosen every flight I got on. Randomly nice. chosen every time. Um, you know what the sad thing is? If they did that to me, I would fail probably every time. <laughs> Because every time my friends get back from target practice, they come over and hand me the gun and go, look at that. It's so hot. It's awesome. And just go off a deep end on it. It's like, yeah, okay, well, I'm now covered in you know residue. Nice. That washes off, right? So, yeah. But the thing is, I'd already gone through security. So uh, I, I, my guess is I was carrying a large backpack. And they assumed that I had slipped a large backpack through with materials for making bombs and had constructed a bomb while waiting for the plane. Every time, every yes. time you did, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Enough about how much the TS, because the idea was right. Let's take these people and make them government employees, and that'll make everything better. That worked. That was no. awesome. 
All right, listener feedback. We only have a couple of them. Uh, one suggestion and one corny joke, uh, and and then we'll move on to uh, some of Seth's uh, uh, experiences at LinuxCon. Dennis has a book recommendation. It says, "Hey guys, y'all were talking about books on a recent podcast. If you start your sentence with y'all, I have to read it like that. Y'all were talking about books on a recent podcast, and I was wondering if y'all read Damon by Daniel Suarez. There's also a sequel called Freedom." I love Dan Brown's Digital Fortress and Deception Point. Keep up the great work. Love the show. I'm also a Patreon supporter. So, uh, Dennis, thanks awesome for being a Patreon supporter and for giving me the opportunity to talk about our Audible.com referral program. So if you go to elementopi.com and uh, click on uh, elementopi.com slash audible, actually I don't have a link there, just type it in elementopi.com slash audible, you can get a free trial uh, for one month. And now uh, it, it, it is one of those things where if you don't cancel, they re- renew your subscription at the uh, uh, $14.95, I believe it is, rate of one book a month. But you can cancel the very second you sign up and you still get the first book. Uh, for free, it's yours. They won't take it away from you, and they can do that because their stuff is freaking awesome. And and I say that because uh, no, I haven't read uh, Demon, but it is in my Audible queue. Uh, and in fact, I have become. I, I just noticed they didn't. There was no fanfare. I was just looking at my account recently and noticed that I've been an Audible listener for uh, just at a year. In August, like the middle of August, was a year. Um, and I have become such an addict that I've actually just doubled my subscription. I'm not the I'm not doing the one book a month anymore. I'm now doing the two book. And and just this weekend I bought three extra credits because I'm going on vacation and I don't want to run out of books to quote unquote read to listen to. I've become such. A, if you're a podcast guy, you're gonna be an Audible guy. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm just I'm one book away from finishing the first uh, Lost Fleet series, uh, Jack Campbell. Um, I will finish that up probably this week, and then I'm going to move on to the Honor Harrington series because Seth has talked about them so much. Awesome. Cool. Both series are super awesome. And then when I get through the 33 books of the Honor Harrington series, I'll go back and read the second Beyond the Frontier Jack Campbell series. Um, and they're all, they're all, it's great stuff. Uh, Audible has a no um, questions ask return policy. You buy a book, you don't like it. They'll give you your credit or your money back, and you go get another book. It's just no questions asked. Uh, there have been a couple of them that I read the description, thought it was interesting, or um, the somebody recommended it to me, and then I realized I have wildly different tastes than the person recommended it to me, and I didn't enjoy the book. Uh, I think I've done it four times in a year. I've returned books, and uh, just mainly because of just preference, taste thing. I thought I was going to like it, and I didn't. Um, but, at, again, out of over a dozen books and of course they have a, a daily deal too they'll send you an email every day and say here's this book today you know it's ordinarily 23 dollars today it's two dollars and they sucker me in on those uh, more often than they don't so I've, i'm pretty much just started signing my checks over to audible yeah that's what i should do in an ad tell people it's going to cost them thousands of dollars um but it's it's totally worth it and i look forward to when i run out of audible books i'm like oh my gosh what am i going to do I mean, I'm going to have to listen to podcasts on the way home. And I love podcasts. I listen to them all day. But it's I have this cycle thing. When I'm at my desk, I listen to podcasts. And when I'm driving, I listen to audiobooks. And when that method breaks down, the pattern sensors in my brain go, whoop, something's wrong here. 
Something's wrong. <laughs> we, we don't have a book to listen to. What's the problem? So that's why I just had to buy some more credits because I knew that I had about six hours of travel each way plus some that I have. I intend to spend some time on the beach with earphones in listening to a book, and I didn't want to, that to cause me to run out, so I bought extra. Audible.com, elementofb.com yeah. slash audible. Do me a favor. Go sign up. Check it out. Cancel 30 seconds after you sign up. That's fine. I still get paid cool see one of the things i'll bring up is about the uh the audible guys is that they've actually also tied their books to it so if you have the the book as a kindle book and you you tie it to your audible subscription you can pick up in the book wherever you leave off reading or yeah. listening to it whisper both sync. ways it's awesome yep not yeah. not all books are able to do that but a large portion of them are and, and so you growing can, yeah so amazon bought audible a while back and when they released the i think it was before they even made the kindle maybe shortly after so they started syncing those libraries up uh a while back and and yeah the the i discovered that accidentally i bought the ender's game book one of the first books i bought and when this new book popped up in my kindle oh well that's cool i got both of them um so Something to check out, audible.com or elementopi.com slash audible for our 15-day trial. Or you can go to audibletrial.com slash elementopi. That's a lot longer. Just go to elementopi.com slash audible. So, no, Dennis, I haven't read Demon, but it's on my on my list. Yeah, and, it's in uh, my queue as well for my reading queue because I'm still – I podcast every time I drive somewhere, but I'm reading when I'm at home. So, um, And I just don't – I can't do books – and do work at the same time. My brain just doesn't work that right. way. Yeah, that's the way I am with podcasts. And some podcasts I can't listen to while I work. Some of them are so dense I have to pay attention. And I can't. I have a, a colleague who listens to books while she works. And I think, she, I don't know how she can do that and absorb the book. Because a book to me is not just about story. It's about the language and the way things are put together and, and the interplays of, of the subtleties of it. And, and I need to pay attention to that. I need mm-hmm. to hear that this guy used this word instead of that word because that, for me, is an important part of the book. Not everybody is. Some people just want plot point A, plot point B, resolution, and we're good. But for me, language is, is, is an important part of it. And I will, I will chuck a good story if it's written, in, for example, um, Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift, mm-hmm. the language was so arcane and so 16th century British, I just couldn't handle it. Um, well, I guess it would have been 19th century British. Um, and I, I, that was one of the books I returned. Not because the story wasn't good. It's a great story. The narration was outstanding. It's not narration. I shouldn't use that word. The performance was outstanding. But the words, the, the language, was. I just couldn't get through it. Um, yeah. So for me, that's an important thing, and so I have to be doing very little else. And in traffic, particularly in Atlanta traffic, you are literally doing nothing else. It's not that you're you're distracted while you're driving; you're distracted while you're sitting. <laughs> See, that's why, and that's one of the reasons why I can't listen to a book and drive because my, even though my drive is about an hour to get there to work every day, um, you, in Montana, you have to watch out for the random deer, cows. Yes. Or other furry critter that might cross the road. So, unless you don't like your car, you need to pay attention to the road. Especially when the fog is so thick that you can't even see the road diamonds as you drive by them. <laughs> All right. Um, at that point, I think I would be driving slower. 
Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I drove slower, but I still couldn't see him. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little spooky going to work that day. <laughs> I There was a couple of days when my usual 20-minute drive took 50 to 75 minutes because of fog, and I'm like, I'm not going to go any faster than my headlights can travel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I ended up finding I ended up finding a uh, a nice super brightly lit semi truck who looked like a Christmas tree, and I just followed yeah, just the stay Christmas behind tree. him. Yeah, if yep. he mows over a cow, he's going to clear the way for you. Or if he goes off the road, I'll know not to follow him. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a long. Actually, there's been two days like that now, so I'm I'm really kind of worried about what the winter is going to be like this year. All right, and the next bit of listener feedback, Rick wonders if the Pope is a Linux user. Uh, a quote uh, from the Pope talking about some nerve problems he has. The Pope said, must treat them well, these nerves. Give them mate, an Argentinian stimulant, every day. He says, hmm, wonder if cinnamon would help. <laughs> so that's it. That's the listener feedback. Sorry, that's the best we got. Should have probably done that first and then done the uh, the book thing um but that was just too good not to not to do yeah. the pope uses linux well yeah, I, that's, I that's guess, the bar low for me too so <laughs> that's I, right I say i thought the the maybe the pope doesn't do it but i think isn't the the oh i can't the remember what they call it yeah the vatican's uh record system is all linux so if i remember correctly sure why not i'll let that propaganda go that's what I. That's I've heard it and I've seen it written once, but I can't. I can't remember where. I can't recall where I saw it. Well, Chris, that's two sources more than you need to make proclamation <laughs> on the internet. So we'll go with it. Sure. All right, Seth. Tell us about um, a stranger in a strange land, i.e., Seth at LinuxCon. Oh man, um, you know it was. It was really, really cool. Um, just to kind of reiterate the story on how I got to LinuxCon, I was just, I was sitting at home one day going, I wonder, and for whatever reason, I clicked on LinuxCon from the Linux Foundation and I saw that they had press passes. And so I fired off an email to them and said, Hey, what are the qualifications to get a press pass? I mentioned I have a podcast. We have a few thousand weekly listeners. Um, just curious. And then I get back an email. I've registered you for credit. You know, here's your registration confirmation for LinuxCon. And I was like, Oh crap. I have to go now. <laughs> now suddenly you have to do something. Yeah. So, and not only did he register me for LinuxCon, he also registered me for like the uh, security kernel update, which, Oh my gosh. I was so they were talking and I think the words were English. <laughs> <laughs> but I had no clue what they were saying. And it was just, I was just looking at these people and I was like, Oh my God, I, I don't even now I know how my friends think when I talk because I have no clue what these people are talking about. But on the other hand, it was really cool because you had people from like, uh, Google and Red Hat and the NSA and Department of Defense, as well as Linux Foundation people, um, IBM, uh, all of Oracle, all of these people were in this room talking back and forth to each other. And there wasn't like, you know, my company's trying to kill your company, blah, blah, blah. It was just like all of these people talking about the security issues, uh, involved in the Linux kernel and that, 
was really, really neat to see. You know, the Google guy wasn't saying, you know, why everybody should be using Google's latest OS because blah, blah, blah. They were talking about the Linux kernel and they weren't talking about how awesome their company was, you know, and they would give presentations. And of course, some of the presentations involved what their companies were doing, but it was all about the kernel. And so that was really neat to see, you know, because Sometimes you might think that, oh, nobody works on the Linux kernel because the foundation only hires, you know, doesn't employ many people. But you have all of these major companies, multi-billion dollar companies working and contributing code. And that's people's job at that company is you work on the Linux kernel. So that even though I couldn't tell you what they were talking about other than Linux kernel security stuff, that aspect was really, really cool to see. So I thought that was pretty neat. And it kind of. I felt all warm and fuzzy for the, at least the near future of the Linux kernel with that. Um, but that was Tuesday, uh, cause Monday I spent traveling and I didn't make any of the Monday sessions for that, but that's what Tuesday. And again, I was just like, I don't know what they talked about. I don't even know why I went there. I don't know why I'm in Chicago. <laughs> uh, but then went to. So wait, uh, wait, before you go, did your special super secret all access, uh, press pass get you any privileges or any swag? Was there an executive watch room you got to use anything? Basically, um, I wasn't barred from any place. I mean, you know, it was just like some people just said all, all access attendee and, you know, mindset media. I could go anywhere they could go. Um, I could talk to the people. I could get swag. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but so no, it, it wasn't there. They were so secret, you couldn't even find them, I guess. I didn't know they were there. Um, you know, I walked around overwhelmed most of the time. So maybe there was this special, uh, secret handshake, but I, I, I don't know. But so I was able to go everywhere. And I mean, at few points, I was standing like, you know, not five feet away from Linus and a couple of people he was talking with. But of course, uh, there was never a time he wasn't talking with a group of people and I didn't want to. You know, if he would have been alone, I was ready. I had my microphone ready and my thing, but I wasn't going to interrupt. Mr. Torvalds, Mr. Torvalds, Seth Anderson, Linux, Everyday Linux podcast. I have a few questions for you. Yeah. If I would have found him alone, I would have at least said, Hey, could I ask you a few questions? Um, but you know, I didn't want to be a jerk and interrupt people, but so I I was able, I could have touched him if I wanted to, but I didn't. (laughs) So he wasn't as tall as I thought. I'm taller than him. So, uh, but he's taller than a lot of people, Seth. Yeah. Uh, but this other guy, um, he's like head and shoulders taller than me. So, and he's like one of the head honchos. So I'm not taller than him, but, uh, but I know they're all smarter than me. So, but yeah. So that was, (laughs) or go ahead. No, that was it. Okay. Uh, so the actual Linux con started, uh, Wednesday. And today I thought, uh, we would just talk about some of the keynotes. And then I talked to a few different people and got some short little interviews and we'll play them here. So the keynotes for the first day, um, were just kind of basic things. One, the executive director of the Linux Foundation, he just kind of gave the state of Linux and he basically said, we dominate everything but the desktop, which everybody knew. Um, so Linux is going great. You know, the adoption rate is way out there. And then the next thing was like the Linux kernel panel and it had Linus and uh, a bunch of other super high up people that I'd never heard of because I'm not an Uber geek. Um, but they just talked about, you know, kind of 
just general stuff and it was kind of neat and somebody asked linus you know um with the success of linux you know what's the one thing you wish for and he's like i really want the desktop (laughs) because uh that's basically the only where that you know the only place that linux doesn't really dominate because you know the android android runs on the linux kernel uh, supercomputers that, that list is basically a Linux list, uh, in the server room, you know, large portions of the internet run on Linux. So it's everywhere, embedded systems, you know, automobiles, all that kind of stuff. The only place the Linux desktop doesn't dominate, or at least as a very major player is the actual desktop desktop. Um, and so, he wants that. And he was like saying, you know, and we're to the point where the kernel isn't the problem. It's more of an infrastructure type yeah. problem. And so I could kind of agree with that. I read a couple articles about that quote, actually. That that was a quote that a lot of people latched on to. And some of them were saying, do, do we need a desktop anymore? We're in the post-PC world. Yada, yada. I, I still don't buy that. Desktops yeah. are still going to be around for a while. And obviously, Linus knows that, too. Uh, did you yeah. see any hero worship? While you were there, just other geeks slavering all over him. Um, no, you know, but like I say, I never saw him without people around him talking to him. The other people who were like high up, you know, that level in the Linux Foundation, I saw all of them at one point with nobody around them. So I don't, there wasn't like a lot of worship, worship, but he attracted at least a small crowd everywhere he went. All right. uh-huh. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, but, you know, he seemed down to earth and, you know, he, uh, granted, I don't know who all he was talking to, but, you know, he had a smile on his face, looked pleasant. You know, I didn't see any birds fly. Uh, I didn't hear any rants. So it seemed like a down to earth kind of guy. Um, but yeah, so I thought we would play the first one. Uh, this is an interview with uh, Darren Davis. Darren works at SUSE and um, I just basically saw we were looking at this uh, board uh where they had people who had tweeted with the uh you know linux con hashtag and so he was looking at that and I we talked for a second i said hey i do this podcast would you like to uh would you mind answering a few questions and he said sure and so we did a short interview can you cue that up mark all right this is seth i'm back here after the closing keynote for the first day of linux con and i'm with darren davis who is with susie and i will just let him talk for a little minute or for a few minutes darren thank you for taking a few minutes to be on the everyday linux podcast well thank you very much so uh what kind of things are you looking to to know my impression of the show? Yeah. yeah so uh, I, I think the keynotes this afternoon were really good. Um, we've had a lot of traffic. A lot of people come by and and uh, looking to see, you know, what's, you know, for us specifically what SUSE is doing. Um, and, of course, we're one of the leading providers of Enterprise Linux, SUSE Linux Enterprise. But not only that, we're really getting heavily into the cloud, you know, so we're, SUSE is now available in public cloud, you know, clouds like Amazon Web Services, Google Compute Engine, and SUSE itself, you know, we provide OpenStack-based cloud offerings for people who want to build their own public cloud. All right, I'll kind of put you on the spot here a little bit. How could an everyday user, not necessarily a developer or anything, but an everyday user who wanted to get involved with Linux, how could they interact with your company to do that 
Yeah, a great question. And for us, you know, it's always back to the community. And for SUSE, our community is the OpenSUSE community. And OpenSUSE is one of the, you know, free Linux distributions out there. We have a very vibrant community. Um, and so for people who want to get directly involved, um, you know, go to OpenSUSE.org. Get OpenSUSE, you know, Linux, and start there. And for uh, for our company, a lot of, you know, future employees and things like that, they start in the OpenSUSE community. They get recognized, and you know, they can they can come and end up at SUSE or go on to other open source companies. All right. Would you say that? I mean, you know, of course, every community is out there, and, and of course, there's some people in the communities who just say RTFM to everything, and then you have the people that are really helpful. Do you have like good documentation and kind of good training that say somebody was thinking about they wanted to get into Linux as a career? Could they just start out with OpenSUSE and then go on the community, pull them along and, and get into where maybe working, not necessarily kernel developer, but like community maintainer or something like that? Well, most definitely. So for the OpenSUSE community, again, it, it starts at the website. There are great resources with forums. So for people who want to get started, you know, there are, there's all the way from beginning forums. I've never, ever installed SUSE Linux or OpenSUSE ever in my life. You can go ahead and download it, install it, go to the, the forums, and start you know, communicating with people. We also have uh, Internet Relay Chat, IRC, where you can actually you know, talk to people live online and you know, ask questions about anything and and people get this impression it's like well oh you know i got to be this uber you know computer geek to go start no we need people to do documentation we have a wiki page there and everything that we document we document on the wiki so people can participate by organizing events they can you know help work on the documentation being a new user they can you know point out holes in the documentation and say hey this doesn't make any sense to me you know and they can either go go either you know, do it themselves or work with the community and, and uh, get it improved. Awesome. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time, but I'll just ask you any closing thoughts that you would like to leave to Everyday Linux Podcast with? Yeah, I, the, the best thing is, is decide, you know, basically get involved. It's an open community, and regardless of what Linux you choose, you know, or just Linux in general, you know, basically get started. It's really easy. The barrier's really low to get started. There are many Linux distributions out there to go start. Grab one. Start playing now. As, you know, Each step you go along, you learn more and more, and it just broadens your exposure, and you can get into the community you know, through just starting to play with it. Cool. Thanks, Darren. I'll let you go, and thank you for being a part of our podcast. And stop. All right. So, I, but when you started talking to people, did you preface it with, you know, I'm from this show, this is what our show's about, or did you just go? No, I kind of told them, I'm with the Everyday Linux podcast. We're aimed at the everyday user to show them you don't have to be an uber geek to use Linux. Um, you know, I'd give them basically some variation of that spiel. Good. And, uh, and, you know, and the people I ask, uh, pretty much a couple, most all of the presenter type people that I ask agreed. A lot of the people who were just attendees, um, uh, they didn't want to. And actually most of the people I ask from the Linux foundation, like who were there, like kind of organizing the event, most of them were like, uh, microphone shy. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that was, well, kind you of, know, or, <laughs> geeks aren't known for social skills. Right. Uh, and so I understand that. What, what, what I wanted to comment on what he said before we move on that, uh, the 
the idea that the the way that our audience, the casual user, can best benefit any distro is letting them know where you, when you have problems. And I yeah. think that's that's what everyday users are most scared to do because when they run into a problem, they think, I'm too dumb to understand this. But, you know, what? basically what he said is if you're having a problem, it's because we haven't made it easy enough for you. Right. And that's typical for OpenSUSE. Um, that's their that's their mantra. When I, when I was dealing with them before, um, way back when, uh, even back you know ten years ago, that's the same thing that they keep pushing down is that it, if you're having an issue, that means we didn't work hard enough. So it's good on them to to you know you know after ten years to be still pushing that thought process out. Yeah. So uh, I guess we'll move on, and I'll just kind of. Um, I put a link in the show notes and we'll have that when we release the show. Uh, they are videos from the people from all the keynotes at LinuxCon up. And I would say, I would, I would just urge you, you know, go ahead and watch these. There's a couple of them where you'll like, I don't really know what he's talking about, but the majority of them, you, um, you will have no problem following along. And I thought they were really cool. So, um, Wednesday evening, um, the guy from edX, which is the massive open, uh, online, uh, courses, um, you know, they're, they partner with the Linux foundation to provide the introduction to Linux course. He gave a talk talking about kind of the science of education and how, you know, um, there's all these great theories and research done on education, but yet colleges and schools look like they did a hundred years ago. Maybe it's time for a change. And then, um, this guy from uh local motors um talked about basically open sourcing a car company from design to implementation and uh it was a really really neat talk and i'm hoping to get somebody from there on the show we're trying to work out a schedule thing um just a little teaser for what might be coming up and then um this other guy or this, this lady, Eileen Evans, she's from HP and she talked about the new open source professional. And she really talked about how, you know, um, careers are not linear anymore. You know, you don't start as an intern with this company and then progress all the way through. You know, she talked about how she started in math and then, you know, went to law and then ended up in actual business position. And that's kind of the open source tinkerer slash hobbyist person you know like mark's example he was in education then he went to medical i mean i've done everything from uh you know customer service to desktop support i've been in education i'm in the legal industry now um but all mine are kind of revolving around tech but you don't have to do that anymore um you know he's like well i don't have a degree in college but how can i get involved in computing well you can contribute you can get involved with one of these linux communities just pick pick one of your choice and get involved in it and most of those companies hire from within their communities if you've developed rep or if you develop relationships with people from that company has a community member then they'll advocate for you and you know they get you past that first interview or that first you know uh computer sort of the resumes and get you into real people um and then the Thursday morning keynotes talked about um this guy from Cisco basically talked about the internet of things and how it is exploding and it was just it was 
that now there's roughly, there's more than one device connected to the internet. There's more devices on the internet than there are people in the world, which is just kind of, uh, that's kind of a weird thought. And they're, and that number would be five or six times, you know, within the next 10 years. There could be for every one person in the planet, there could be five or six or more things connected to the internet. And then, um, they had somebody from Intel talking, um, about open source and, um, how Linux, you know, is in the new connected world. It was just his, I just kind of, uh, my eyes kind of glazed over on his because he was more of a technical thing and I didn't get a lot out of him, but, um, I thought we would go to this next interview. Catherine faint is, uh, she is somebody we went to a presentation together and I just kind of struck up a conversation with her afterwards. And, um, I talking to her for coming. I said, Hey, would you like to be on my podcast? And she agreed. And it, um, anyway, I'll just, uh, we'll play the interview. Hey guys, this is Seth coming at you from the floor of a presentation I just finished. And I'm here with Catherine Fant from Collin College. Um, she was sitting in it with me and we started talking. So I asked her if she would be on our podcast and she agreed. Hi, Catherine. Good afternoon. Cool. So, um, what is it that you do? I teach with the Collin Computer Networking Program. I'm actually in the Science and Technology Engineering and Math Division. And uh, we also have a convergence technology area that includes uh, studies of cloud services. And that would be why I'm coming to hear about the uh, Cloud Open, the Linux part, the Linux 80% part of the uh, cloud services. So have you had any involvement with Linux before coming here, or is this kind of like a fact-finding expedition? This is a fact-finding expedition. I, I did teach a Network Plus class at a high school last spring, and one of the fun things that we got to do was add a virtual box in Ubuntu and play with Linux a little bit and do some networking with Linux. And um, so then in exploring the whole uh, aspect of the cloud directions that we were doing with our team at Collin College. Um, when the Linux question came up, I was like, yes, I want to go. I want to go learn about the uh, Linux part of cloud. Well, let me ask you this. Did you find that you had to stop and teach how to use Linux, or do you think it's mature enough that especially students today go, oh, I know what I'm doing? It is fabulous. The new GUI interfaces that make it so user-friendly, it's as easy to get used to as Windows is. You know, Windows changes their operating systems, and it's no different than changing from a, a different Windows operating system. So it's very, very user-friendly now. Well, that is really cool. So um, I know we've only been through like one day of the conference so far. Have you learned anything yet? That's kind of a broad question. I absolutely have. Um, and um, I think I've got a lot. Of, I've written as many questions down as I have notes of things I've learned because I'm, I'm trying to connect all of the dots. Um, so um, um, are you asking me what specifically I've learned? Um, if you want to give like maybe one thing you can, but um, you know, I mean, we could talk all day, but just what's one thing you've picked up so far? Um, I guess um, I probably the thing that's standing out the most in my mind right now is the new developments in networking through software as opposed to hardware. And that directly affects me since I have taught the Cisco Networking Academy program for 
10 years. So um, I'm very, very curious about how all of that works, and I'm, I'll be delving into that more. Well, awesome. So let me, uh, you're a teacher, so you have some background in this. Do you think that Linux is to the point where an everyday computer user could just pick it up and run with it just the same way they could pick up a new version of Windows and run with it? I absolutely do. I do. I had students who loaded um, Ubuntu onto their virtual box on their uh, desktop machines and they they ran with it they were they found it took them no time to explore of course these are young people and they're used to exploring technology but they had no problem in fact I, you know I would get occasionally I'd be going I don't know how to find and they would show me because they could they were going all different directions exploring so um, it, it, it is very user-friendly and not something anyone should shy away from at this point I would challenge anyone to load VirtualBox which is free software and then uh, download Ubuntu and load it and just play with it. You can do it on any PC. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. I don't want to keep you. Any uh, final words for our listeners? Uh, Linux is coming. you got to get with the program. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Catherine. I just wanted to comment on, on the one thing she said there. You asked the question, can an everyday user pick up Linux and run with it? Um and I I loved her answer in that guess you can if you don't know it explore it that kind of thing, but it it made me think that the same is true of Windows and Mac. Um, that we complain that it's too hard to do certain configuration tasks in Linux, or it's too hard to set up devices, or it's too hard to to do to find drivers. The average person, the everyday regular kid in in middle school, doesn't know how to do that on Windows or Mac either. You know, they, yep. they take it, they take their Mac to the genius bar or they, they pay some guy to come to their house to clean viruses off their windows machine. So I hadn't really thought of it until just this moment, uh, when, when she said that, but I think we Linux advocates are actually being unnecessarily biased against Linux when we complain about the things that are too hard to do. Yeah. Maybe it's an interesting thought process. I liked how she brought up the idea that, um, about the, uh, Anybody can try it, and anybody should. Right. Because I think that's a great thing. That I think no excuse not to try it. Yeah, there's no reason not to. You can't hurt your machine with it if you're virtualizing it. So why not at least give it a shot? Well, yeah, and you know she talked about virtualization, but we can just reiterate here: you can also do um, a live CD or you know USB key these days um, and try it without doing you know. Of course, I guess you would have to have a CD or DVD player, and those are apparently almost extinct if you listen to <laughs> yeah. mainstream media. Um, but or you pay Black Lab Linux twenty five bucks, and they send you a bootable thing. Yeah, right. You know, so you don't even you don't have to really make any changes to your system. You don't even have to install a disk. You can just boot off of a different device, be it USB key or CD. And if you don't like it, you just take it out and throw it away and use some hand sanitizer and you've lost nothing. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, it, I go ahead. It is still a bit of a geeky process to put a typical ISO on a USB stick. Um, yeah. And, and the, that's why I say, you know, black lab, Linux. they're the only people I know of that will just send you a USB stick. Uh, Ubuntu might, I don't know if uh, the last time I checked, they were still doing DVDs. Yeah. Um, but you know, it is, that part is still a little too difficult. Um, but you know, it's not easy to install windows seven on a USB stick either. 
Right. Um, so it's it's the same amount of difficulty no matter what the OS. Yep. Yeah, we've made the point here. It might not be easier or it might not be better, but parity is a good word. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't say they were equal. I think each OS, e- even even you know the fruity one, uh, there are things <laughs> they do better than the others, but there are also things they do worse than the others. And so you know, even Linux does some things worse than the others. So um, parity, you know, they're all comparable. Of course, that's just me loving Windows and hating Linux again. There you go. Man. Right. <laughs> yes, because you you are uh, you are uh, uh, what's what's the antonym for moderation? I can't Ooh. think of one. Yeah. It just went blank. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say you were the you know the fountain of unmoderated, but I couldn't think of a good word there. So, um, but yeah, um, any other comments about Karen or? Or we Catherine, need more I mean? teachers. We need more teachers like her. Teachers who aren't scared. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. I, I mean, Chris, you know. Uh, oh, you teachers are afraid to say I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what? The greatest, the 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 first teacher on record, Socrates, said the beginning of knowledge is admitting that you know nothing. And our classroom teachers today are scared to tell the students they don't know. Yep. Yeah, and that or, was the first words out of my mouth. If I ever ran into a problem when I was when it, they would bring me an issue, I'd look at him straight in the face and go, "I don't know off the top of my head. I'll have to go look it up." Yeah, we'll figure it out. All right, so I guess we'll uh, we'll jump to the Friday keynotes and then uh, we'll queue up the last interview. Um, Friday there was three keynotes. One was from the uh, vice president at MakerBot 3D printing. Um, I got to see a 3D printer actually in action. One of the days was superhero day. So you got to dress up like a superhero if you wanted to. And the guy who dressed up as Thor used the 3D printer to print a hammer because, you know, he didn't have one. And so, and of course it was a smaller one and he didn't paint it or anything, but it was kind of cool. And you could just sit there and watch it make things. Um, so that was cool. And then we, like I say, MakerBot is one of the, uh, bigger companies in the 3d printer space um next one was this guy um jonathan uh i'm not even gonna try his last name um he's president of the open prosthetics project he you know you i found his presentation maybe one of the most interesting and informative there you know you if you watch um um what's the what's the christian surfer girl movie who lost her arm Soul Surfer. Soul Surfer, yeah. If yep. you watch Soul Surfer, you know the prosthetic thing, and you always see these news stories about this awesome prosthetic hand that looks just like a real thing. And But he was like, really, the state of prosthetics is this hook that was patented in 1912. Um, he's like, the advances are... It's not wood and iron. Now it's titanium. Uh, and, but he was, he was lamenting the sorry state of prosthetics. And so he has formed, um, this, uh, the open prosthetics project to kind of try to address that. And, you know, why is it that prosthetics basically suck? Um, he was, he was, uh, in Iraq and he was wounded, um, you know, lost a lot of his arm. So he has a little past his elbow, um, on one side. And, you know, he was talking about, he was just sharing some of his struggles and kind of how 
the press is selling us a bill of goods that the prosthetic problem is solved. And he's like, nothing could be further from the truth. We're sitting a, in a hundred years. We've basically gone zero um, yeah. in the field. And so he's well, it's um, like Jonathan was talking about last week. That there's not enough financial incentive because the audience is so small. Yeah. And that was one of the points he made. You know, he was like, there's, and I don't remember the number. I don't want to make it up, but it was a very small number of people who have this problem. And so, you know, there's nothing for that. And, you know, you might make good press by saying something, but there's not a lot of money behind it. And he was talking about if Google will just turn over the resources of one of the eight robotics companies they bought last year, you know, maybe we could make some, make some progress. Um, but, Anyway, like I say, I thought his was just one of the most informative and insightful presentations. The the local automotive guy was probably the funnest one, but his uh, his was probably the most informative and uh, insightful one there. And uh, if you're only going to watch one of these keynotes, listeners, I would um, find the one from the Open Prosthetics Project. It is from uh, Friday. Um and just watch it. You know, all of these keynotes are 20 to 30 minutes, so they're not super long. You you can, you know, watch them over a lunch hour or like an after work one day. Um, you know, it take less time than watching one episode of The Big Bang Theory. Um, I think it'd be well worth your while. And then the last one was a pre- guy who was in the IBM system. Well, but before we before we move okay. on to the next topic, I had one thing I want to say about this. I, well, I saw this video on YouTube uh, a while back of this guy who was working on prosthetics in a lab. May have been this guy, may not have been. And they were working on this prosthetic arm. And right now, it's too big. Doesn't have a power source. It's not portable. You got to plug it in. But as he was talking, he was a pair uh, a, 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 a an, oh, and as he was talking, he he was tightening a nut on this just this thing that they had created. It was an actual machine, and he said, "We keep trying to make machines like the human hand. If I'm going to have to have a fake one, I want it to be better." So he grabbed the nut with his bare hand and rotated his wrist 360 degrees a couple dozen times as he was talking and screwed the nut down. He said, "Do that. None of you can do that. If I'm going to build a machine, I'm going to build it better than the one that I have." I, I, I like go. that idea. Of course, like I said, right now it's not portable, it's not practical, but I like that idea. If you if you're gonna lose an arm, by golly, let's give you a six million dollar man bionic arm. Yeah, or a Terminator arm. <laughs> All right. Uh, the last keynote was from IBM Systems, and they were basically talking about their next billion dollars in Linux and where it's going. Um, and you know, this is not something the everyday user would be real concerned about but for the type of person who goes to linux con it it's really cool stuff um you know there's the x86 intel architecture that basically runs the server room world um and you don't hear a lot about it but the power pc is ibm's architecture and used to you couldn't take a machine running on x86 and run it on power pc you would have to recompile applications and do all this kind of stuff and he's talking about how they through the work with Linux, um, the actual OS, you can do just that now. You know, if you need to, if, if your hardware fails and you have to move a VM uh, or you just, you know, back up off of an x86, restore on the power PC, and it goes forward without any problem. And he was talking the vast majority of software um, will go without any changes at all and there's only just a tiny sliver with any significant changes the others are just minor configuration and i thought that was really cool that um 
they've addressed the issues, the incompatibilities in the hardware between the Intel hardware and the IBM hardware. So again, that's not something that the everyday computer user would care much about, but the geek and the developer and the system admin, um, you know, somebody who's purchasing hardware, that's something they might care a lot about. And I thought that one was pretty cool. Um, and not related to that in any way, the last interview I wanted to play today is Dawn Foster. She actually gave one of the presentations I went to and, um, I caught her after she left and enjoyed her presentation. And I asked if she would do an interview and she didn't. I'm, I wanted to just say, Obviously, you all know that I'm Seth, but I just kind of need a way to start the interview. And so that's why I say, Hey, this is Seth. Um, no, no big revelation there. But anyway, <laughs> the, the, this is Don Foster. And if this interview sounds the best, this is actually the last one I had done. So those other two were the first two I had done. And so by this one, I kind of, I wasn't so overwhelmed by Linux con. I was kind of, uh, kind of used to myself there and. I knew how to ask some questions. So this is Dawn, and then uh, we'll do that. Take it away, Mark. Hey, everyone. This is Seth here, and I am talking with Dawn Foster from Puppet Labs, and she just did a presentation over communities in open source, and she agreed to be interviewed. So, Dawn, thanks for taking a few minutes to be on our show. Thank you. Well, all right. So give us the, like, one-minute who is Dawn? What does she do? How did you get interested in computers and technology? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm Dawn Foster. I first got interested in computers and technology back in the 80s. I had an Atari. Um, you know, maybe it even started before that. I, My dad and my grandfather were amateur radio people. So they were really big into amateur radio. And so I got my amateur radio license when I was a teenager. I learned Morse code when I was, I think, in kindergarten the first time. And then, so this, you know, this this formed sort of an affinity for technology in general. And then when I got the Atari, all of our, honestly, all of our games were bootlegged. So, you know, my dad was kind of a, kind of a hacker. So he would, he would give us uh, tapes with computer games on them, which was pretty cool. But I also like to write my own. So I would do my own programming on the Atari just to see see what I could make it do because I thought that was pretty interesting. And then, you know, I ended up going and eventually getting a computer science degree like a lot of people do. I was a system administrator for for Unix back in the day and I ended up doing the open source thing sort of by accident. I was I was at Intel and they needed someone to focus on Linux and open source tools for new platforms and they looked at me and they were like, well, you did Unix, that's kind of like Linux and you used a lot of open source software when you were a sysadmin, so you know something about that and so here you go. And so I got started with open source back in about 2000, 2001 and um, I really enjoy it. So I've been doing kind of community related stuff and open source stuff since, since that time. Wow, you've been in it a long time. So uh, how does this LinuxCon stack up with some of the ones you've been to in the past? I think the Linux cons keep getting better, actually. The early ones were very focused on the kernel, which is, is not my thing. I'm not a kernel developer, and that's a very low-level technology. And so I feel like the Linux Foundation has done a really great job of adding additional components onto LinuxCon, like Cloud Open, and they have, you know, days devoted to specific things. And so I think they're getting a much wider variety of people, which I think really adds to the conference. So I think this conference in particular has, uh, I think is better than the Linux cons that I went to last year. 
Awesome. Um, you know, one thing we talk about in our podcast is that you don't have to be a developer to help out the community or Linux in general. And your title is actually a computer, a, a community manager. Is it important for people who aren't just the developers and the super users to be a part of a community and not just a part, but to be involved in a community? Really, anybody can be involved in the community. Um, People, I think a lot of times, especially those of us that have been in communities for a really long time, a lot of people focus too much on just the people who contribute code. But the reality is they're... These projects are they're they're almost like fully formed companies in and of themselves. They they need all of the stuff that you would expect a company to have. They need people to write blog posts. They need people to do marketing. They need people to go out and evangelize about the product. So they actually, you know, I think users are incredibly important when it comes to these technologies because someone who uses the technology can go out and they can evangelize it to other users and they can have, you know, presentations, they can talk to other people, they can write about it. And really do a lot to promote the project and do good work for the project without actually contributing any code. Uh, they can lead user groups. There's lots of stuff you can do, even if you don't, even if you've never written a line of code in your life. Well, that's great. Thank you. That's you know sometimes it's like I'm a geek, but I try to talk non-geeks to people, and sometimes they just think, oh, they're just saying that but it's great to hear from other people that that's important uh switching gears a little bit you said you read 73 books last year uh what is like your top one or two current favorite sci-fi books oh so my current favorites so one of them is the martian by andy weir so he's a brand new author um this is hard sci-fi it's it's a really really good book it's an amazing story i would encourage anyone to read it another new author that i really like is hugh howie and he's written a series called wool um, W-O-O-L, like sheep's wool, um, that is really good. And so I would encourage people to read uh, to read some stuff by him. Uh, he's fairly new, but uh, really incredible, incredible writer. And then there's all the classics, right? There's, there's Asimov, whom I'm a big fan of, and um, uh, Orson Scott Card, Ender's Game is another good one. Cool. So uh, any parting words you would like to leave to the Everyday Linux podcast listeners? Um, I would just say, you know, kind of uh, keep going with it. I, I think that, you know, we really do need people out there who are using Linux and talking about it. And, um, uh, yeah, basically just, you know, keep participating in your communities and, um, you know, talk about the stuff that you're doing to other users. I think it's important. Thank you for your time. Thank you. All right. Any comments on that? Um, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say, you know, that's that surprised me she uh being that high level you know she had her ham radio when she's a teenager that's impressive because that's you know i don't know she didn't say what level of ham she was but that's an impressive thing to be able to say in general and to program for the atari (laughs) um awesome i programmed for the atari it was just basic back then i know but still but how many kids do you know that would actually think huh I want to program something for this. I want to do something on this. Most of them just want to play a game nowadays. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, that, in my experience, I, I had a wasn't an Atari. It was a, my brother had a Vic Twenty Commodore, and I had a TRS eighty Tandy, uh, same generation uh, computers. And there, you could either buy cartridges at sixty bucks a pop or write your own software. So in our case. 
coding wasn't an option. Now it came with a book of code, right? And you just yeah. typed it in and saved it on a, a tape, an audio cassette tape. Right. Um, yep. Uh, or, you know, once you do that, you start to understand that in key dollar sign means input keyboard uh, of a string value and you start playing with that and, and you learn. So it's, I suspect she probably learned the same way. Any, any good geek starting in that era would have done the same thing. And to kids today, you give them an iPad or, or an Android tablet, they download an app and they think that's programming it. Um, so we've, yeah. you know, that it's, it's just the era she comes out of. But it's still pretty cool. I mean, yeah. I was really impressed with a lot of the, a lot of the things she said she was doing. I'm surprised she referred to her dad as a hacker, though. I don't know too many people hacker that would, dads. Yeah, <laughs> that would take that moniker. I know I wouldn't if my kid says I'm a look at my dad. He's a hacker. I'd be like, yeah. no, no, no. I'm not Let's a hacker. I'm a hack. That's the difference. Ooh, <laughs> oh, through the heart. I- I will chime in on her sci-fi recommendation and say you definitely have to read The Martian. It is yes. awesome, and it's in my, my Audible queue. It, do they have it out on Audible? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, it's worth it. That one will be great because it's written like a lot of it has like log entries. So that that one is, I will actually take up the Audible free trial and I will do that one just because I, I want to hear that and maybe convert me to the audio non-reading book consumption method although I doubt it. So I think you will be ham- hamstrung by how slowly you have to listen to somebody else read because the Martian is like a 12 hour book and you probably finished it in an hour and a half. No, I read it over a few <laughs> days. I probably I probably put six or seven hours in it. All right, enough about that. Back to the interview. <laughs> Any other comments? Uh, no. What, what did y'all think? I, you know, I was. Go ahead, Chris. I was going to say you could definitely tell that you were on a roll at, for that one, there, Seth, because that one was the probably the best introed and questions asked out of the ones you've played so far. Well, like I say, that's the last one I had done, and yeah. so. I don't know how good it was, but I think it was, we would all agree it was less bad than the others, which were like <laughs> the first ones I had done. So, um, I think she was a good example of the, you know, the, the mature, uh, Linux user and advocate, you know, the, yeah. the gray beard, but I hope she didn't have a beard. Um, <laughs> no, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm guessing based on the timeline of her age, she's probably 50 ish. I mean, of no, her story. she's like our age. Okay. So yeah. a little younger than, than, I mean, a little younger than I expected. Uh, but so she got started even younger than I did. Um, and you know, she followed that track of, of playing with it, seeing what it can do. And, you know, we were lucky enough to be coming of age in this time when all you needed to know was, something about computers to get a job in computers you know right. you didn't you didn't have to have uh, a fancy education and that's that's how we all three of us have our careers is that we were the guys who weren't afraid of it um and so i think that that's great that she's there uh, um i don't think she re- and and one of the things that bothers me about the linux community at, at large is that it's those people in charge and they're not that is a singular generation. It has happened once. It will not happen again with microcomputers as we know them. Um, and and we're still writing for and organizing for and trying to satisfy those people. 
And um, I'm not saying that she's at fault, but I'm saying she's part of the establishment. And I think that unfortunately we're doing, and, and we're not going to get Linus's desktop like he wants unless we actually start trying to please the idiots, right? And the, the guys <laughs> that, the, that the people in the forums get so frustrated with. Don't run them away, guys. That's your future. And there's right. a lot of guys who would say, yeah. well, I don't want that to be the future of Linux. Linux is better off without them. Linux is dead without them. Yep. We need the idiot users, plain and simple. Because, I mean, we were all the idiot user at one point. Exactly. I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you learned it in 10 minutes. For that first nine, you were an idiot user. Uh, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> and her job title, she's actually community manager of um, Puppet Labs. Um, uh, so, you know, she kind of polices the community and keeps it up and going. Um, but yeah, and then, so, uh, next week we'll, uh, talk about some of the actual sessions I went to and sprinkle in a few more interviews. Awesome. Well, that's, that's the first, that's the tease, the first part of LinuxCon, where we had our very first man on the floor, uh, in the form yes. of Seth Anderson, the representative of, of everyday Linux. Um, and I, I want to begin, I want to kick off our news section talking about, the, what I was just talking about of, of learning, we're not in the days anymore where you can just be a guy who picks stuff up. Yes, those jobs are still out there, but now you're the, the unusual guy. You used to be every guy was just the guy who picks stuff up on his own. Now people expect you to know stuff. They expect you to have uh, information. They expect you to have certifications. Well, Linux Foundations has introduced a bunch of new certifications. Uh, yes, they are the uh, Linux Foundation Certified Sysadmin and the Linux Foundation Certified Engineer. And um, we'll link to a story uh, uh, ZDNet covered this. Um, they actually unveiled it. And if you went to the con, it was kind of cool. He said, now, feel under your seats. And they had taped a paper there with a 25% off code for one of the certification tests. So, um, you know, so when I get around to taking one, I'll have that 25% off code to go after it the first time. And um, the cool thing about these, I, I talked to them a little bit about these. They didn't, they didn't know why I was so asking so many questions, but you know, the Linux plus and the, um, the other one, the LPCI level one, level one. Oh, yeah, LPIC yep. level one, those are for the most part multiple choice or has a lot of people like to say multiple guests. Um, you know, you have to know and they try to trick you and make them tough, but it, turns out that you know is it a b c or d or is it which one is the least incorrect or pick two or or whatever so there's a certain amount if you're just a good guesser you could possibly pass those the linux foundation they're focusing more hands-on doing the thing instead of just saying how would you do it they're like do it and so there's a lot more simulations and you're actually doing the actual things that need to be done rather than answering questions about them. And um, I want to say I emailed Anthony about this and I said, Hey, Anthony, have you heard of the new certifications? Are you working on aligning the Linux Academy certs uh, with them? And he responded back and he's very attentive. I didn't send him this email till a few hours ago. And he's like, hi, Seth. The short answer is yes. And yes, from the looks of all of the content required for the first Linux foundation cert, is also covered by Linux Plus. It looks as though the sysadmin one is not nearly as in-depth. However, 
Even though we cover it all, we are going to be launching a prep course for each one of these certs here in the near future. So I want to talk to you about Linux Academy, the Anthony I was speaking with. They offer you step-by-step video courses to help a beginner all the way through a power user become a Linux admin um, to help you run, manage, configure, set up, and keep running Linux kernels to prepare for a certification, but not just a certification to make you a paper tiger, to actually teach you how to do the exact same things you would be doing in your job. Um when you join, you get your own Linux lab server that runs on the Amazon cloud. You can choose from any one of eight different distros. You could even redo the same lesson in different distros because sometimes they do them a little different. There are PDF study guides with reference sheets. They time code those to the videos they go about. There's like about 200 different training videos. You can even do a lesson browser where you can just go in and pick, oh, I want to pick that one, or I want to pick this one, or you can organize kind of a, a, a chart or a track that you want to go through, as well as they have uh, quizzes. There's even Linux Academy for Teams if you're like, want to do something has a department or a school. And if you're bandwidth impaired like I am, you can even do a DVD for offline viewing. Um, and you know... Okay, just to just to let you know, if you're like, I'm cheap, I don't want to pay any money, I'm not going to do this, fine. Go on YouTube, find some videos. Good luck on knowing if those videos are related, if they're even done by smart people or just hacks, uh, if they're the current version. Um, go, go be a part of forums and read wikis, and you can find all this information. What you're paying for at the Linux Academy are people whose jobs it is to run and configure Linux. And then... You can sign up seven days for $1. It's a seven-day trial. You sign up. You go through. Do a few lessons. See if it's for you. If you like it, I know you'll like it. I pay for this, and I don't pay for anything. You can do $20 a month. If you sign up for a six-month block, you can do one month for $25. Or for a super savings, $199 for a year that comes out to be like $17 a month. Go online, try to find a boot camp, try to find prices at other places that don't ask you for an email and marketing list spam to just start flooding you about this. Guys, you're not going to find a better deal on learning Linux. And again, these aren't just going to assume so many of those labs and um, boot camps that you go to. If you're going to get anything out of them, you already need to be an expert. If you want to get something out of the Linux Academy, if you know how to watch YouTube, you know, if you know how to watch a YouTube video, you have the prerequisites to start the Linux Academy. You can go at your own pace. And what if you don't understand something, you're not holding up the rest of the class. You can replay it two or three times and you can understand it. They are quick to respond if you have questions, if you have concerns, if you don't understand. There's a community that has grown up around the Linux Academy that will bring you along and you can become a Linux admin. You know, you won't become a command line godfather overnight, but you can become a Linux admin however fast you want to. You know, you can take a few months, you can take a whole year if you'll just stick with it. And if you will invest in it, this is the best return for your training education dollars I have ever come across online for technical things like this. 
And it's not just Linux. It's Amazon Web Services. It's OpenStack. Uh, it's, you know, as they said, they're, they're, they're going to be uh, aligning themselves with these new standards. When things change, the Linux Academy changes with it. Uh, they're very proactive uh, as well as reactive. They react quickly, but they don't always have to react because sometimes they're leading the charge. And when you go, when you sign up, use the referral code EverydayLinux to let them know that Seth sent you there. Yeah. And, yeah. It's it's a good place to go. <laughs> All right, we we now have the command line Godfather seal of approval. And, Definitely uh, we'll move on. The next uh, list uh, bit of uh, news: Mobile OS's security sandbox approach flawed. Now this is interesting. Both Android and uh, iOS have touted the fact that everything is sandbox, and that's the root of their security. Linux Insider says, eh, maybe not. Yes, uh, this was an interesting story when I came across it today. Um, the Android GUI flame framework lets university researchers hack into applications with up to a 92% success rate. Um, they tested apps from Gmail, H&R Block, Newegg, WebMD, Chase Bank, Hotels.com, and Amazon. So, you know, these might not be apps everybody has, but, you know, WebMD, that's important stuff. Chase Bank, uh, Hotels.com. You know, these are not fly by night organizations. They've been around for a flaw. They've been around for a while. Um, I don't understand exactly how they do it, but it's like because you're letting this memory run in the background, it assumes something else is running in the foreground. And based on some algorithms of how they work, they're able to detect what the other memory is doing, even though it was sandboxed and, um, like for Amazon, because of how Amazon worked, they couldn't, uh, they can only work 48% of the time, but, uh, Gmail, 92% of the time, they could figure out what was going on in Gmail, um, 86% of the time with Newegg. So, um, it so was just. Just to give a little more layman's terms, it's called a side channel attack, meaning you're not attacking the app. You're not attacking the data. You're attacking the what the app does and you're monitoring it. So basically they're building essentially a rainbow table. They're saying, I'm in the Gmail app. When I do this, I see X happening. When I do this, I see Y happening. When I do this, I see Z happening. They build this this table knowing, having access to the Gmail app, being intimately familiar with how it works by doing it. Everything they do, they make note of what happens in the memory. Once they build that table, they can now look at what's going on in the memory and infer what's happening in the app. Yeah, but the thing was, they weren't doing it from within the Google app. They were doing it from within a different framework, and that's that's what the big deal of was of this story. Again, it was it was a very interesting read. Right. So that you still have to interact with the app to build your database. Right. And then you build a second app that just watches what's going on. And so, you know, that you built your database by by interacting with an app. So basically what they're saying is by using an app you can know what the app does. Yes, this is a true statement. Um <laughs> uh, but they're clever about how they're very much short of well don't share memory uh and that makes everything less efficient because as it is right now there's one pool of ram if if a a system says i need it and my app doesn't need it it'll just be released and given to that app 
if you well, now you're going to have to declare RAM and say this is mine, it's encrypted, nobody else can use it, which will mean you can do less with the same amount of RAM. Right. Yeah, and apparently um, Newegg um, they expect the fix to be out uh, next week. They say they're going to fix the vulnerability in in Android first, and then iOS. I would kind of reckon it's sort of like. A buffer overflow is to the OS. This kind of is to the, um, to the apps that run. Again, I, I don't know how, I don't know how they would secure it, but just, you know, it'll just this- force apps to be a lot more proactive about their memory management. They're going to have to clean their yeah. own, uh, they're, they're, they're going to release RAM more aggressively. They're going to have to have better garbage collection. They're going to have to code better, plain and simple. Yeah. Yep. So that makes that it's just going to make the uh, entry level for coding for Android and iOS a little higher because people are going to have to know those extra steps. And a lot of people won't do it. The the app mills, mm-hmm. you know, you can go online and build your own fart app. Uh, you know, that's that's not going to get better. And so then the, there will be a class of um, easily hacked and a class of less easily hacked apps in the world. Yeah, you know, although I hope the fart app is. The fart apps are on the uh, less easily hacked because I want my fart data private. Data data. <laughs> yes, and it's maybe maybe the poop log app. Hopefully that one will be uh, coded coded more securely as well. Yeah, that that would be important. Uh, okay, next one. Trouble in Trollville. I just love that article title. Um, there's trouble in Trollville, my friends. A venture capital firm laid off some folks. Yes. Oh, no. Until- yeah, Intellectual Ventures, which is the largest, most well-known uh, IP troll out there, has laid off 140 workers, um, basically about 20% of its employees. Now, of course, they put the spin on it and say, uh, we just had those employees when we were setting up. Now we're ready to go and don't need them. Um, but this might have something to do with the fact that they've lost a couple of cases they were thinking they were going to win and some Supreme Court decisions maybe made patent software a little bit harder. Um, so anyway, I hope it's bad news for trolls and not just their business is more mature. So they don't, they don't need all the startup labor. I love this quote straight out of the marketing department. Intellectual Ventures creates a market for inventing invention, allowing inventors to reap cash from their ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. Exactly. it. Uh-huh. <laughs> Oh, all right. I we all know how much I hate software patents, so let's not even go down that road. Uh, let's look <laughs> again. Um, most people download zero apps per month. I I probably blow that curve, but not oh, by yeah. a lot. I mean, I don't download apps all the time. Yeah. Um, this was it was kind of an interesting story. Um, apps represent approximately fifty two percent of time spent with digital media in the US and that's up from like 40% in early 2013. Um, you know, and Apple has boasted 75 billion all-time app store downloads, but yet it finds that the average smartphone user uh over 65% download zero apps per month. Um only about one third of smartphone owners download any apps. Uh, the top 7% of smartphone owners account for nearly half of all download activity in a given month. Um, well, you know, you think about that. Most people have their apps and they use the apps they have and they don't really add new ones. 
So, you know, and if they do add a new one, it's usually, you know, some whatever game went viral, angry flat birds or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's that the zero absolute, that's a, that's a mathematical quirk, right? A hundred right. million people, one million apps, you know, that ends up being zero apps per month. Um, right. And so, yeah, I, I downloaded an app just today and deleted it five minutes later. So it also, you know, you got to look at your net gain. Um, I often download apps just to see what they're about, check them, see if they're worthwhile, uh, and then they go away. Um, so, the, but it, there are probably six apps that I interact with on a regular basis on my phone, um, and the rest of them are just things I use once in a while. See, on my phone, I'm, I, I think I download, uh, I'd have to double check to see You're what still I'm a doing. noob, though, Chris. This whole smart ah. thing is, is still new to you. I, I mean, yeah, the phone the phone part yes i will agree the phone part yes um but i've had tablets for a while now but i still pull apps and burn apps just as fast as is what you're describing mark almost more than because i'm trying to find more reason or more reasons to use my phone more or the tablet more what i'm finding out myself is that i'm specializing each device so my phone has certain apps on it that aren't on my other ta- my other tablet or my or any of the other devices I own. So a lot of it is, is the phone is easy easy enough. It's it's my playground phone. You know, I, I play with the phone to find out what apps I want to try on the tablet and on the, and, to, and which ones stay on the phone. But I probably do two to three a month easily. All right, and this ties into the next story of app rot, letting an app go and just letting it die of of inattention well and you know and the the story here is kind of how most the whole model of the app store is like the top 25 list uh or the 10 best of this or whatever and if you don't make that list then nobody ever hears of your app so it's like you have this very small sliver of profitable known worthy apps you know candy crush stuff like that um you know facebook whatever um and then there's this very even smaller sliver of like the middle class apps and then most everything is you know out in the ghettoville that nobody's ever heard of and there's no way to search for it um you know, and this is just a quote from the OS news story. As the economics get tighter, it becomes much harder to support the lavish treatment that developers have given apps in the past, such as full-time staffs, offices, pixel-perfect custom designs of every screen, frequent free updates, and completely different iPhone and iPad interfaces. Um, so hope, you know, we might, there might be a need to change the app store model. Uh, you know, even if the change is a better way to sort and find stuff because, you know, the search function, especially in the Apple store, I, I found the Google play store to be slightly more searchable, but in the Apple store, the first couple of hits are vaguely related to what I typed out. And then the other things are just, you know, whatever the retarded monkey threw in the pot <laughs> to round out the search. Um, well, and uh, Income. Uh, what's the word? A contributing factor of this is the tremendous redundancy of apps in the market. Um, so if you type in flashlight app in in Android, you're going to find tens of thousands of apps that all turn on an LED. 
right? Yep. But the difference is one app feeds ad revenue to this guy and another app feeds ad revenue to that guy. Uh, so a lot of the reason that only a few apps are highlighted is because only a few apps are worth highlighting. Right. And I, the other problem I, I always see with apps, and I'll pick on podcast catchers for the first one, because it's been my current bane of my existence, um, is their feature set seems to be a, every other release is broken. Um, I had for a long time, I was using podcast addicts and it was great and I loved it because I could background task it and it'd play. But then all of a sudden it broke and it wouldn't, it never got fixed and never got fixed. So I moved off to a different one and none of them support even the same subset of features like background playlists or, uh, manipulation of your playlist without having to have um the app full screen uh it's just amazing how widely different each app even if they're in the same genre how widely different every app is beyond pod it costs eight bucks but it's worth it beyond pod has widgets that let you do stuff without launching the full app got a lock screen widget by default beyond pod I'll look at Beyond Pod. I, I, that's probably the only one I haven't checked recently, because I went through and Podcast Catcher and I installed every single one and just looked at each one independently. I never looked back from Beyond Pod. Now I know a lot of people like Dog Catcher or G Potter um, because they're more geeky set. It sounds to me like you're like me. I just want to be presented by podcast and let me play them and get the UI out of my way. Beyond yeah. Pod. Okay, I'll take a there, look at it. There's a free app, a free ad there. See, we do that all the time. Um, and I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to make this the last uh, sh- uh, link in the show. Munich, the much vaunted, much valued Munich transition from Windows to Linux may be backtracking a little bit. Uh oh. Yes, uh, German media is reporting that the city is now considering a switch back to Microsoft in response to some complaints they've been getting. Um, Schmidt, uh, who's deputy mayor of the CSU party, says the, he describes two of them. The first is the issue of compatibility. Users in the rest of Germany that use Microsoft software have had trouble with the files generated by Munich's open source applications. Um, and the second is price. Schmidt saying that the city now has the impression that Linux is very expensive due to custom programming. Um, and Schmidt is also basically an Outlook fan. Um, uh, boohoo. Uh, Linux doesn't have Outlook. I'm so sorry. Um, and then Schmidt is echoing the mayor of the SPD party. And then I'm just going to basically jump down. I'm going to read the last paragraph. Microsoft announced last year that it was moving its German headquarters to Munich. This move is planned to take place in 2016. While Ritter was involved in the deal that precipitated the move and describes himself as a Microsoft fan, he says the the criticism of Limux, which is their kind of flavor, is unrelated. So basically, uh, you know, Microsoft somehow made him some money and involved him in the deal, and he loves Microsoft, but that's not the reason he's criticizing Linux. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, they do, there are p- valid points there, file incompatibility, and, and you do have to custom, if you want it to be exactly like Windows, yes, you have to do some custom coding there. That's, that's one of the things that, that has plagued every transition between OSs, whether it's Linux or, or I've seen schools go from Windows to Mac and schools go from Mac to, to Windows. 
most of your time and effort is spent making the new thing exactly like the old thing. Yeah. Don't do that. Which is stupid. Exactly. Yeah. If you, if the old thing was what you wanted, stick with the old thing. Um, you know, I've I've seen lots, uh, not lots, but I've seen a number of schools switch from Mac to Windows uh, because you know Apple stopped giving laptops away uh, like they did in the 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 early nineties. Um, and the, the, the buying the high-end machines became unsustainable, so they switched to Windows, and they spend all their time saying, how can I make my Windows machine more like a Mac? Well, don't. Just be a Windows machine. And yeah. then in my own school, uh, I moved, you know, began the transition of moving from Windows to Linux, and it was halted by, you know, a decision maker who outranked me because he, I couldn't make it exactly like Windows. Well, it's not supposed to be. It's a different thing. And I used to tell people all the time that, that nobody complains when you pay money for the pain of transition. When you move from Windows to Mac and it costs you more, nobody complains. But for some reason, a free pain is less valuable than a paid pain. Yeah. yeah Things and that you'll never understand. Yeah. And here's the thing. If they switch back, now they're going to have to do a lot of custom programming exactly. to get back to the way it was. You can't just delete that programming. Uh, there's still going to be upgrades because they were running Windows NT when they switched. I mean, switch, go from Windows NT, fire up a machine running Windows NT, and then run Windows 8. And tell me they're the exact yeah. same thing. Oh, my gosh. And so they're going to have to go through the pain of change again. But since it's an expensive pain this time, there won't be complaints. Well, maybe a really yeah. expensive change because they're going to have to pay for all the licensing for every machine again. Yep. So, and the idea yeah. is is somehow they're spending more money on customizing their code than they will spend on buying licenses. Only if Microsoft is giving out licenses, which sounds entirely possible. Yeah, yeah. It does. I mean, it why else like they're getting bought back? Yeah, I mean. Microsoft says, Hey, we're opening up, uh, a company here. So that's, that's jobs. That's revenue. That's tax base. Uh, why don't you run our stuff too? You know, uh, it basically Microsoft got tired of reading articles about Munich and much. said, we will do whatever it takes to, to make, to reverse this trend. And if yeah. we have to give you free site licenses of all our software, we will do it to make these articles go away. That's the, or that's deep, my reading of this article or deep discounts. That's yeah. I read it as deep discounts. You know, like the five dollars a seat type discount. Right. Yeah, five dollars for OS and Office Suite. Yep. Yeah, that's how and I read I, it because they, they won't give it away for nothing. But if they can say, "Oh, look, we we'll, we'll give you five dollars a seat," um, people are gonna. It's gonna happen, and that's it's silly. But yeah, it's just you know, I mean, who knows what went on behind the, you know, in the back rooms that we don't know about, but. I mean, man, it just it just seems fishy. It just seems fishy. And being a guy who hates uh, Linux and loves Windows, I'm super excited about this. I, uh, <laughs> I'm glad to see this. Thank you for bringing this article to my attention, Seth. Mark, I I don't want to lie to people. You made me put this in or told me I'd never. <laughs> you are banned from the show unless you bring me some, some Windows-loving news. <laughs> Jeez. All right, and and to con continue the Seth, the all Seth, all the time show, what has happened this week in history, Seth? Okay, this was a really interesting story. August the 23rd, 1990, Tim Berners-Lee opened the World Wide Web to new users. Ooh. So he opened the floodgates, 1990, 24 yeah. years ago. So the internet still wasn't open 
to new users. It took a little while longer, but the web was, uh, meaning the uh, uh, universities for the most part. But it didn't right. didn't reach the homes until like ninety one, ninety two, just shortly thereafter, when um, uh, famously um, Gal Gore opened the internet to the public. but yeah the the web was a thing but it was an infant thing right and it was looking ahead at your um tip of the or link of the week seth let's go ahead and jump there because it it is certainly related to what the web looked like in 1990 versus what it did today yeah i thought this was an interesting article when i came across it it's just um it's from The Verge. Uh, you can check out what the first generation of your favorite website looked like. And as you scroll down, like the first one you come to is Reddit. Well, Reddit's only been around since 2005. Um, as you click over the picture, your scroller, your mouse becomes a dividing line. And on the left side is what it looked like uh, opening day. And on the right side is what it looks like today. So if you scroll all the way over to the right, you see the original web page, and if you scroll all the way over to the left, that's what it looks like today. Yahoo, a very old and storied website, came out in 96. Um, on the right uh, and on the left, you can see uh, Nintendo, um, everything, McDonald's, NBA, and Google, um, just a lot of them on there. You can go through and take a look and see. Um, Metafilter look exactly the same. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Google, I, I don't know, I haven't seen it on this list yet, but you compare Google today to Google then, pretty much the exact same, yeah, a white actually, page with a bar. Yeah, there's actually less on it today than there was then, <laughs> so, um, but yeah, AOL, another one that came out in Oh, whitehouse.gov in 1997, man, that that right there yep. is the ultimate example of what websites looked like back then, is it was a tiling nonsensical background a banner all it needed is a blinking uh text on it somewhere or, or the construction sign yeah maybe the white house virtual library was blinking because this is just a snapshot <laughs> yeah. um but yeah ebay looks pretty much the same new york times looks largely the same it got bigger yahoo yeah. surprises me though out of all of them because i did i forgot how clean yahoo was yeah it was just a list of links back then That's yeah all. That surprises me. That that one does. I forgot. You know, it's amazing when you look back at these and you go, oh, my God, I remember that. Oh, I bemoaned the changes at Yahoo when they <laughs> changed. Oh, my gosh. Because uh, Yahoo didn't used to be a search engine. It was a directory right. where users directly added their own stuff. A lot of people it listening was, to the show may not know that. You could You could browse the directory. Later, they added a search function. But it did not index the web. You had to, as a person, go and say, I am adding this to this section. So you had to categorize your website. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is it in the media section or is it in the entertainment section? Or And they were broad section. Then you, you dive those down. It was a, a, a card catalog of the Internet. Yep. Google yeah, came yeah. along and said, we're not going to index anything. We're just going to search everything and just present it to you and uh, alta vista was doing that and uh well web, before web Google, crawler web yeah. crawler was actually the first one i think yeah web crawler didn't make any ranking it was just the first one i came to is the first one you get alta vista was the first to try to match um the value of your ranking 
and then Google said, we're going to match the value of the page. That was what made Google special. Is yeah. we, It's not about um, how many keywords we can hit. It's about how good the page is. And that's I, still their niche. I loved AltaVista, man. That was my favorite. <laughs> yeah. You, back in the day, fine. yeah, Dogpile com, uh, searched AltaVista and Yahoo and Google and a bunch of yep. others. Back in the day, you could tell what kind of person somebody was by what search engine they used. What what's what's your search engine? Yahoo, oh, noob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what yeah. surprises me is Dogpile actually is still online. It is. Yeah. It is but doing it's the same Yahoo. thing. <laughs> yeah, it's the exact same thing, and there's an app for it. Of course, there's always an app for that. <laughs> I forget that there are such things as search apps because I've had Google now for over a year and I just talk yep. to my phone. I don't yep. search anymore. I just talk to it. Google now changes everyone's life when they ha- yeah. when they when they embrace the Google, it's over. Just just drink the Kool-Aid. That's right. All right, Chris, what have you got for us this week? Of course, it has to do with your favorite Steam OS. It's it does. Um this is a breakdown of from the Tech National News. Um it's a breakdown and comparison between the the steam box and all of the next generation consoles um it's kind of entertaining when you go down and you read the differences between each of the you know from the steam box to how it compares to the playstation 4 or the xbox one and how in just specs alone some of the stuff is just like that's how can that what surprised me is how low end some of those video game consoles are yeah it it just blows my mind, and then to hear that you know the benchmarks on the Steam Box are s- over and above what a lot of the other ones are, and it's just it's mind boggling. But it's over at uh, like I said, Tech National News, and they break it down pretty well. That it, it's not geek speak, and you could pretty much follow it even if you don't know what some of the pieces are. It's just a good, it's a really good comparison. So Steam is essentially a high end PC. Whereas currently Xbox One and PS4 are moderate PCs with spe- specialized code. Yep. So it's up to the game developers to write to their hardware. Uh, Steam's taking the, the opposite approach. We will design hardware that can handle whatever you throw at it. Pretty much. And it, that's been that way for many years. Um, the, the same game, when they do a multi-system release, you can tell the ones that have a little bit more inside the consoles that are because of the quality of the graphics. Uh, the one game that I always bring people to because it was, it's, it was a big classic and it still is for some people, the Borderlands series. Um, I have friends that were diehard Borderland fans on the Xbox. And when I started playing it on my game PC and I, they'd come over and watch me play and they'd be like, my, mine doesn't look anything like that. What is that stuff? What is that? Yeah. And they, they, it was just, they were like, that's not even Borderlands. That's a different game. And it's just, it's going to be that much more in everyone's living room now. And so I'm really excited for when that actually gets released. I'm, I'm or, my nails. To play, to play the, the wet blanket a little bit. Maybe the Steam box has to have more processing power because of the overhead that Steam puts into it. Because they're not playing native code. They're running it through their emulator, so to speak. Well, no, a lot of the, co- a lot of it is native code. Um, the Steam is just is an app store basically, right? But it it all has to run on their their Steam OS, right? Which is Linux, and these other things aren't mm-hmm. Linux. So they've they've got to have some sort of um, abstraction layer 
between Linux and the game that's not designed to run on Linux. From what I'm reading, a lot of the games are being rewritten. Um, there are some that are getting wrappers around them, and those are going to always perform like garbage. Uh, but there are a lot of the games that are being, that are, st- that are Steam OS certified are native code. Okay. So, uh, you, and so you, that means that Steam is a big enough player now that people are writing to it. Yeah. Um, and that's why there aren't a lot of AAA titles on Steam right now because Titanfall isn't going to write to Steam. Not yet. No, no, they're not. Not yet. But what, what'll happen is when, when this hits the shelves and, I'm really hoping that everybody goes out and buys one because it'll it, it's going to change the net the environment immensely, uh, and I have a feeling that once that happens, a lot of the AAA titles are start or will immediately get moved over. Um, is that Exciting stuff if you're a hardcore gamer. Yeah, it's going to be great. Competition is always a good thing. I believe that no matter yep. what what it is and we know that there is competition for podcasts out there we know that we are competing for your time and that when you sit down here and listen to a seven-hour podcast you're taking away from from your audible.com book or your other podcast and we thank you for that and because we value uh, your time we also value your input and so if you've got something to say about these topics or about anything else elementopi.com is the place to go there click the contact us button at the top of the page uh, send us an email directly at edl at uh, elementopi.com uh, or if you want to have your very own voice on the show you can leave us a voicemail on our google voice line at uh, 559 i am op free anywhere in north america or you can just send me a file and i'll play it uh, but we do uh, also don't forget about our forums where you can uh, ask questions and get answers you know we we can only answer a handful of things here but our community responds in the forum so it's not just us you hear from everybody so we encourage you to do that all of that can happen over at elementop.com and we uh, we appreciate your time and seth chris as always i appreciate your time and and work for making me look so good every week for doing so little um, hey, we try um, it, it takes a lot of work to make me look good it was the Seth show to this this week though, so it was. great for you, Seth. Yeah, I even took down my face thing just to make y'all look better. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he doesn't have his uh, big windscreen, so the people watching the video, we apologize. Um, <laughs> next week, uh, I think we're going to do a more philosophical topic based on an email I got actually during this show. Um, and so the guys don't even know about it, but, uh, I think we're going to talk about file sharing slash privacy, sh- uh, piracy. Are we and not going to do LinuxCon part two? Well, I thought we'd come back to that. We'd space them in a week. There. Okay. Do you, do you, cool. do you want to do them back to back? Um, it doesn't really matter. Okay. Uh, I just well, figure since nothing the I say here actually binds anything in stone, yeah. I may totally forget this, but, but a listener brought up an, an interesting idea about not just the legality but the ethics of sharing right and we've talked about uh, that concept before but I, I just think it would be interesting to have a discussion about when is it wrong to share yep uh, and when is it right to share so um anyway that's that's my thinking right now for next week's show all of that could change between now and next week uh you'll have to tune in next week to find out what we actually do talk about because for now that ends this episode of everyday Linux. 